in that great book, Deep Survival, there's a story about a hiker who is hiking with his buddy and his buddy is a much better hiker than he is. So his buddy gets tired of having to wait for him all the time and says, see that peak, go meet me there at six o'clock tonight. And then off his buddy goes. And the weather turns and he's getting more and more tired and it starts to snow and he has to come to the grips of, I'm not a hiker, <laughs> I'm a survivalist. And he, he has to change his thinking from, I'm gonna reach that peak at six o'clock. And he has to say, you know what? No, I'm gonna go find shelter. I'm gonna make a fire because I don't have the capability to go hike there by 6 p.m. in the current conditions. I think a lot of companies are gonna have to really look at that and say, who am I? I'm Steve Hurst. And I'm Vesey Ivanova. We're with Found Brand Agency. I'm Christian Cruz, founder of WavePoint. You're listening to WavePoint Found, a podcast that explores brand and identity in the context of change. What does it mean to be lost? And what does it mean to survive? The answers to both of these questions are deeply connected to knowing who you are. And there are two things that limit your ability to adapt through change. An ability to see a future and an inability to see yourself in the future. Foresight and identity. So I want to dig into identity a little bit more because I think we've been having good conversations about how identity is at one time immutable. It's a, it's a deep part of who you are as an organization and the change you want to make in the world. And, and yet at the same time, we're starting to see either through the pandemic or other trends happening, a lot of pressure on identity and making sure that identity stays current to your consumers and to your communities and to your planet. I think part of our Sherpa ship so mm -hmm. is going to be to really help organizations understand what their true assets are and then how they can remobilize in this incredible fast moving rest of the twenties, the need for having all of these new skill sets and abilities, they're gonna have to turn that around pretty quick. And at the source of it is who am I really? And part of that, who am I really is what motivates my people to get up every morning what drives everybody in my organization? I, I think I would say that it's, I wouldn't even say identity stays current. I think the, the way you express that identity has mm -hmm. to evolve and, and, and stay current. And I think since the last time we talked, one of the big things that has certainly changed is this significant rise in social justice movements. And the pandemic has, has certainly been a part of that in terms of helping people understand and see in a very real way, the inequality that's happening in the world not just from a health perspective, which is where we first saw it, but also from an economic social determinants of health perspective. And that is certainly impacting companies in terms of how they are choosing to try to respond to this moment. But maybe if we can go backwards a little bit and just talk about, if we think about the last couple of years, what are some of the, what were some of the things that were happening with brand and identity and why was it so much, why is it so much more important these days? to, as a company, to really truly source and understand your identity and, and use that identity, not just for branding, but for being authentic in relationships with consumers and others. Yeah, I think a lot of what we're seeing blossoming right now didn't start recently. It has been ongoing and it has been influencing trends and identity and the way companies uh, present themselves for a while. The whole authentic concept of authenticity is certainly nothing new. 
I think that's enforced largely by digital and by the transparency or need for transparency that customers call on brands to display. Yeah, and I think the just the availability of being able to connect one-on-one, right? It's possible, therefore it starts to become expected. But I think what we're seeing change now is that it, it's becoming a lot more important because before you could do the dance, you could look the part in a very superficial way. And it was, I think a lot of people would let you get away with it. It would be, it's good enough. You're providing, you're speaking about sustainability. That's great. You're doing these programs uh, and we're not going to dig too far into what exactly is happening with them because we're grateful that companies are starting to realize that it's important to do these programs. Well, I think there was, it was like a consumer separation of what the expectations of what a, a brand or the companies they buy products from not what they should do, but what they do. I think it's like the the sort of lightweight signaligning of sustainability or um, social involvement was enough because exactly. there wasn't a deeper expectation for the brand to or the company to to really be doing anything beyond that. So as long as they displayed a cursory awareness of it and messaged that, I don't think there was a broad consumer demand or expectation for for more. Yeah. yeah. So it's not just that, that digital has is more transparent. It's that digital has created closer relationships. So it used to be for a lot of companies, you were shielded from the ultimate consumer at the end of the line by having distributors mm-hmm. and retailers in between, right? Now with so much work going direct, so much business going direct to consumer. And the fact that even if you're not a direct to consumer brand, you still have uh, relationships directly with consumers. There, therefore, you, you can't just get by with what you're saying. You've got you've to actually change what you're doing. Companies are developing much more intimate relationships with consumers and more direct relationships with consumers. And so transparency is a part of it, but also strength of relationship is a part of it. It feels like a loss of trust in a way that you would feel with a friend rather than the the gap between your relationship with people that you know and the relationship with brands that you know is narrowing significantly. And I think part of it is that technology is able to create intimacy that wasn't present before in transparency that wasn't present before. I think it's also that there's more of a large picture view of how things interconnect. So when we talk about sustainability, there's of course environmental sustainability, but there's also organizational sustainability and sustainability of systems in terms of, okay, if I buy your product, what is that doing? If I buy Nikes, what is that doing to factory workers in China who are possibly being forced to produce this these materials without being treated the way they ought to be treated. There's this extension of the choices that I make as a consumer are impacting another human being across the globe and I can know about it right away. And therefore I have a responsibility to do something about it. And therefore I have a responsibility to hold you accountable as a brand. And if you don't respond to me, then we can't have a relationship anymore. That is also reflected in, I think, the strength of a relationship to a brand now is not so much legacy and time invested. If we're thinking about Nike in the 80s, 90s, uh, early 2000s, where I've worn Nikes forever. It's like my brand. I'm not thinking too deeply about what they do. I'm, I'm expecting that their product will evolve along with the times, and I'm cool with that. But now, because of the transparency and, and the, such active social change, uh, adaptability is the the kind of key uh, brand affinity touch point, right? So I would be more into Nike now if I saw that they were very actively adapting to these moments of change. It's less about my legacy and my history with that relationship. And it's more about, are they 
nimble and agile and aware of all aspects of their business and reflecting that in the choices they make and the communications that they put out. You're right. I think it's almost is one of the biggest brand touch points now is your willingness to change quickly mm-hmm. and your willingness to show, okay, we, we heard, here's what we're trying to do. So it's the nimble uh, humility. Yeah. Yeah. Nimble mm-hmm. humility. I, I don't think that consumers are expecting brands to be perfect. In fact, they're expecting them to fail but they're also expecting them to learn from those failures and adapt quickly and show that they care. Yeah, brands still have a little bit more uh, leniency in the cancel culture than individuals do at this point. So does that mean, that also means though then that if, so so you've got a core identity as an organization that is has been part of your brand for a long time, but maybe needs to be expressed differently in these new times. That puts enormous pressure therefore on your organizational capabilities. like how mm-hmm. digital you are, how quickly you can turn on a dime and change. When I think to Steve's point, I think the other aspect is also how to communicate uh, in a way that sounds sincere that they are trying to change. So these logistics issues of systems being what they are and being slow to change, the bigger the organization, the slower the change, those are real challenges. So an organization might have the desire to change even in leadership, the, and still not be able to do it quickly. So it becomes essential to start communicating right away what is being done and to do it in a way that looks like you mean it so that you're not, it doesn't sound like you're just making excuses um, as to why you haven't changed yet. So I'm sure you guys have gone through this organizationally with companies and especially as a professional, it's leading some of these changes inside companies like a rebranding campaign. Mm-hmm. And how incredibly sensitive employees are to changes in the brand mm-hmm. and how the amount of change management that you have to do just to get your employees to get on board with a potential rebranding. Yeah, I think it's it's pivoting what was a glacial movement of the external marketing arm of, okay, we're going to go through a rebrand. It's going to be six to 24 months. Um, and there's going to be internal pieces that are moved along the way. And then at some point there's this kind of big unveiling. Uh, to, I think, a more agile approach to marketing and messaging and, and brand. So that 24-month period looks like there's micro changes happening to communications around the rebrand and pivot internally. And then that starts to leak out through some of the messaging and social in kind of small ways. So you're less building this castle that, that you then um, unveil, but leading toward an ultimate outcome. And, and so it, it takes a different kind of strategic uh, kind of lens on it and a little bit more vulnerability and exposing sort of a work in progress and humility around, okay, this part of what we thought we were going to rebrand and message as doesn't really work. So let's evolve with either our internal user feedback or what we're hearing on social or, or from our customers. So it's a complete retraining of, of that marketing muscle and that in the way that marketing interacts with brand agencies. And this isn't something we're going to have under wraps for a year or two and then unveil. It's, it has to be something that we're building um, alongside feedback from both internal and external audiences. And that's a huge retrain, the same way that it is on the product development side with Agile. It's a huge retrain of the muscles that the marketing and agencies have, have typically exercised. It's a retrain of uh, what clients expect too, because a lot of them expect to tell you what they want and you're going to go away and you're going to come back. And so there's a little bit of a, you have to build that relationship of trust so that you can really co-create together. And that can be that's an interesting challenge. And I'll give you an example. We're, we're doing a, a rebrand right now for a company that has been around since 84. 
they're a clothing retailer. And that would, that's been a, a really interesting challenge from a, if you think about a company and what was considered fun and cool in the 80s versus what's considered fun and cool now. And our purpose coming in is to allow them to transition to a new brand visually and to be able to, to empower them to speak about themselves in a way that is going to be authentic to, to who they've been. So they're not pretending to be someone new all of a sudden because no one's going to buy that and it's not true, but also in a way that's going to resonate today. So we had to start and we, this is our approach with all clients is we talk to a lot of their people, not just the people in marketing um, in product development, but also the people who talk to their customers, the people who talk to their retailers and understand all of their perspectives. And everyone, everybody has an opinion on that company's identity. And we took those opinions and those things that they hold dear and we use them to build and use those as building blocks for their new identity so that everyone would feel like they had a piece of it that they had not just a say, but that we actually took what they thought and built it into something new that makes sense today. Ideally, in this six to 12 months of rebranding them and redesigning their packaging would be to have some kind of social media uh, engagement where we're teasing that out and getting feedback and, and, and bringing um, customers in on that, on that journey. But if you talk about the evolution of rebrands, even involving the larger internal team and getting feedback from them and making a more of a co-creating inclusive processes fairly on the cutting edge of the last five to 10 years of brand development. So you should have kind of your eye on bringing as many people into the kitchen as possible. We're doing a lot more shopping at home. The pandemic has forced us inside. We're now, we're much more, we're having much more intimate relationships with brands that we're bringing them into our home in a different way than just going out into a store and buying something. And, and so therefore consumers have a, a deeper attachment to some of these brands. At the same time, it is a massive time of change. In other words, there's all these things that used to, we used to think was immutable and unchangeable, and those are all melting. And we're now in this incredible time of change where people may start to have, may question the brands that they're working with and may feel that it's a whole new territory and a whole new way to look out. And so how are you taking advantage of these new intimate relationships with consumers in a way that preserves your relationship and keeps consumers still looking at your brand, even in this time of great change? So I think the basis has to start with, before you get into that, how do I engage my customers at this moment? The internal assumptions of, of how you can do that and what you should do should be diminished because the expectations of the consumer at the moment are very flexible. Like they're, everything is upended. And there's an example of Frito-Lay and Pepsi um, just launching over the last three months, a direct consumer website where people can buy snacks directly. That's not a, a way that consumers ever expected to interact with, with Frito-Lay and PepsiCo. And internally at PepsiCo, I'm sure they were like, we're never doing that. So that, you had to get past that initial block of expectations and assumptions before even entertaining what is probably a pretty radical idea inside of a, a large-scale CPG company. And then I think when you get out of that space of, okay, what? let's not be limited by expectations and assumptions, it's having to find and root yourself in what your identity is and can be perceived as in this kind of current environment. Absolutely. And there's a, an element too of, so speaking of trends that um, started before, but have really amplified now, frugality, right? Of course, people are going to be looking at whatever they purchase now, whatever interactions they have with uh, brands is they're going to be evaluated 
more carefully. So there's, of course, the sort of political impact evaluations that happen, but there's also just the value. Like, why am I getting this? Do I really need this? The sort of honest display of value, I think, is really important. And I think it's especially important for brands that are normally might be considered non-essential. So I think a lot of clothing probably in some ways can fall under that because do you really need an extra pair of yoga pants? Maybe not. And especially sports clothing that is something you would do, you would get in order to go have fun. I think finding ways to reframe the way your product might be able to actually take care of people, even if taking care of people means giving them a way, a space where they can go have fun for a little bit and forget about some of the hard things that we're dealing with right now. I think coming at that in an authentic way and checking back in to the, are you giving right now? Are you finding a way to give to people, even in the context of selling them a product, I think is really crucial. And it's a, it's a way that you can really connect in a meaningful way with people. Yeah. And to reiterate a point that you, you had on there, it doesn't have to be heavy. Video games right now have a purpose beyond what they had six months ago. And it's not really that different. And it's not that heavy, but it, it is purposeful. It's a place to have fun. It's a place to, to, to relax and release. And that's okay. They don't need to position themselves bigger than that to, to fit into a greater, greater social context. But they can find a, a more purposeful identity in, in that kind of leisure, um, forced leisure activity. Mm-hmm. An interesting example is Lululemon buying Mirror. So here you have a, an apparel brand that, is, that with the acquisition of Mirror, all of a sudden now has a direct digital connection into people's homes for initially for health. But if you look at some of these Mirror apps that are happening, you don't just have the traditional, hey, I'm going to help you work out. I'm going to help you do, but I'm going to help you lift weights or I'm going to help you bike. Or, but more and more, there are things like meditation, yoga, Uh, a lot more sort of self-care things that are happening through that portal. It's not a stretch to all of a sudden start to see digital health care being delivered through that portal. Um, All of a sudden, they're not just an apparel brand. They're a lifestyle and health brand in a very different way. Because, of course, this is a new industry for Lulu who might have some flush cash to invest into. But from the other end of how Lulu builds relationships with its customers and what Lulu's identity is, how do they square that and how do they move into that market in a way that feels authentic? And doesn't just feel like another big company dividing it, itself up. Yeah, I think it's an example of exactly an identity evolution because, and we're seeing this elsewhere too, this um, sort of starting to, we're starting to merge wellness and healthcare and started to see it, starting to see it as more of a continuum of being well instead of, oh, you go to the doctor when you're sick and then you also work out and those are somehow two separate things, but they're not. They're all things that you do in an effort to be more well. So it makes sense that there's companies that are making that connection and using the identity that they have, which is they're already associated with wellness in their clients' minds. And then just making that small leap over into what about, what about how else can we extend that into healthcare? And I, I think I can see more of that happening. Yeah. Wellness and value-based healthcare is um, going to be interfacing with digital devices and digital brands, obviously with through the Apple Watch, there are a number of apps that are using people's health data and to make money off of people being well versus people being sick. Mm-hmm. And it, given that healthcare is about 20% of our economy right now, shifting wellness and value-based services into that space and opening up lots of different brands to participate in that journey of 
I'm going to pay a doctor when I'm sick to we're all going to get savings because I'm well is going to be a journey that a lot of companies are going to need to look at. And again, if you're a brand that has an identity around anywhere in that space, you're going to be looking to extend or push mm -hmm. yourself into that space because consumers are looking for help in that arena. Does it last post pandemic? Some people are already getting sort of pandemic fatigue, right? If I did everything that I was supposed to do to take care of myself, I wouldn't have any time to work. <laughs> but have it has created. <laughs> yes. Have you done your hour of yoga? Have you journaled? <laughs> but it has created a real, I think this is a change that the pandemic has inevitably brought on, which is for some people who have been really on that treadmill of work and not really investing in self-care in a meaningful way. Maybe they went to the gym, but did they actually pause in their brain and actually give focus on themselves in yeah, a, in a meaningful way? Task, right? Yeah, or was it just one more task that they checked mm -hmm. off their list? This forced pause uh, is inevitably going to impact a large number of people who are going to go, wait a minute, why was I moving so fast before? Mm -hmm. Did I need to move so fast? And it's going to, and I think it already has, shine a light on the real value of self-care, not as a buzzword, but as something you have to do in order to be sustainable as a human being, that you have to take care of yourself in order to continue to function. I think it's something we were starting to lose before the pandemic. And I think that might become rebalanced now. We may have fallen into the the building of a to-do list around our, our pandemic higher self and mm -hmm. fallen into old patterns. But I think what, what's come out of this is the awareness that we're doing it. It's okay. I've, I've now fallen back into my task list and I'm, I'm now overly dedicated to work again, but I knew there was a time when it, mm. that, that balance was there. And then hopefully people keep that, that awareness and uh, of that moment, because I think it's pretty easy to fall back into patterns. And I think a lot of us have. So, and I think this is how I'm just, I just want to make the connection to identity because there's a clear, uh, there's a clear line here. A lot of people have a strong identity, especially in America, a really strong identity around being a person who works, like kicks ass at work, right? This is who a lot of people are. And having to remove themselves in one or more ways from that is very personally challenging and forces that identity to then rebuild itself in different ways, which of course, by extension, forces the identity of any of the brands that they interact with to also have to take that into account. If you've been reaching people and on that valence of, oh, we're all like working really hard and we're all like super optimized human beings. And all of a sudden that comes into question, then you as a brand have to consider that and have to find ways to connect with people that isn't on that really intense way of living. So that brings me post pandemic. If we imagine, and actually it's looking pretty good that we're going to get a vaccine here in January or several vaccines in January, February at a large enough scale that the economy could really start opening up again in significant ways in early spring. You can imagine by next summer, a pretty booming economy globally. And I think there's two things that are part of that imagining. I think on the one hand, you've got companies that are going to want to try to recoup all of their lost sales. Once marketing ramps up, there is this temptation to be this, to have this just enormous push to buy my products, buy my products, which does not square with what we just talked about. Mm -hmm. I think you can su su summarize it like this. People have changed themselves. People th have changed on the inside. So it's not just that we're scared and sitting at home and some of us are broke. And as soon as that goes away, things are back to normal. This is transformative in a lot of different ways. Companies need to transform along or they're going to be called out for it. 
yeah, there's inevitably going to be that um, initial kind of relief and exuberance and jump back into it. And you see it a little bit with people um, traveling this summer. They're doing it restricted, but there's that joy there. And I think what will happen when the economy opens back up and we can all get back to normal is there will inevitably be that pretty big push from a large part of the population back into that. But and that could mask the what still remains of the trepidation and fear in, in another large chunk of the population who are, are kind of shell-shocked by this year of quarantine and by, hey, do I really want to go to a theater? Do I really want to go into stores, even though, yes, we're all vaccinated? And I think there's a danger of companies falling back into, oh, we'll just go back, back to normal because people want to buy. Um, and that's a lot of you know what the administration is pushing with keeping the economy open now. But that, that won't be real. It's um, missing the point of what people are actually feeling. Yeah. Yeah. I think also, so then there's the other bit there is that if you think about by the time the vaccine arrives, it will really have been a year that we've been cooped up and under this. And while people may not have as much financial resources, they can, they may go out and really value experiences over things. And so if you're a company that makes its money off of things, as we said before, identity has been shifting for a long time. Like it's mm -hmm. been a the experience economy has been coming around for a long time. And I, a lot of companies have had to re-examine the roles that they play in the lives of their consumers or their customers as an experience rather than a product and how to monetize that. But not necessarily a lot of companies have done an extremely good job of that. And now all of a sudden, a year from today, they're all going to have to be really good at it. That's a really interesting point because the pandemic is, is shining a light and forcing this change in a lot of different areas that was already trending. Uh, you know, a small part of the population was already shifted to experiences over things, even though the majority of the economy is pushing things. And, it, you know, we can still be stated that way. There was that, this bubbling up of this isn't right. We all experiences make us happier. And there's other areas of how the economy wasn't working, whether it's the restaurants closing now or the businesses closing now, we're rotting anyway. Uh, so it's, very bad. It's obviously hugely impactful for a large part of the population negatively, but it's forcing really drastic movement in these places that needed it anyway and may have maintained a zombie kind of forward momentum were it not for, for COVID-19. I think that another shift that following exactly the direction that Steve is talking about, I think the experience economy is possibly in some places going to shift into something that is like a community economy, meaning that people will want to intentionally invest in anything that feeds and fosters the community most immediately close to them. And I think that is fed by the fact that I think we all felt rather abandoned by leadership in the face of this. And of course, what do we do when that happens? We, we stand up and we make do with the people around us. We take care of the people around us. And that lasts and um, I think that will continue on is almost like a, another force of the economy where you are going to double down, not just on, oh, I'm going to support local small businesses. I think it's going to go further than that, almost the same way that you have these pods of families coming together to figure out how to educate their children and maintain social bonds during this time. I think the same will happen, start to happen with businesses as well, where they are starting to see how they're part of an ecosystem and they're going to start to intentionally feed these small local ecosystems. So if you're a large brand, what does that mean? That means in some ways, parts of your business shrinks, but then in other ways, you're massively increasing your community engagement community by community, right? Mm -hmm. How do you as a national or international brand 
participate authentically in these communities. These things were already happening. But again, the pandemic has massively accelerated that shift. And so having a brand express its identity authentically in community across the country and across the world becomes a, a new capability that they may not have had. Yes. And it's a massive undertaking in the same way that centralized supply chain and efficiencies are going to need to be evolved past because we see that they don't work under pressure. Centralized marketing and, and product um, focus doesn't work. And so you increase that focus community to community or region by region. Uh, and so there's a, a locality or a regionality to um, the way you build and distribute your products. Large CPG companies who would buy or, or alcohol companies that would buy craft beer um, brands we're doing this initially where they would buy San Diego-based craft beer company, leave all distribution and, and or leave all production there, but handle distribution. Close to the pandemic, you were seeing that kind of a road away as the, the beer market um, was falling. Those, those large uh, manufacturers were starting to bring the production in-house and close down those regional breweries. Pandemic hits, we got to go back to regionality. It, it's They were already on that move until the market showed them that they needed to create efficiencies in production and then they would go back to their old ways. And so I think if that can stick with large companies three to five years down the road, the sort of localization or regionality, not just with how you develop products, but how you, you engage with your consumers in those regions. So here's the wrong way to do this. Pizza Hut tried to launch a local uh, pizza place and they literally built a whole brand and they tried to run it as like a neighborhood uh, pizzeria. But it was just like it was just a Pizza Hut, but like, rebranded. That that is something I would classify as highly inauthentic. So if you are a large company, you shouldn't try to be local. But what can you do? You can do supply chain well. You can do safety. Well. There's a lot of different things that you can do really well, better than the local guys. So how can you contribute those services in a way that doesn't battle the local economies, but maybe empowers them in some way? Lean into your strengths because that's what owning your identity is. It's not trying to be local because that's the cool thing now. No, be who you are, but just find a way to fit into where the ecosystem is going in a way that strengthens it rather than weakens it. So one of the, this, so in that case, then it's about who are your local partners, like needing to probably do more partnering at the local level in a non-traditional way. I think the old way of thinking about it was your local partner, if you were a national brand, was whatever storefront was there. And now it's- Otherwise it was who you bought to integrate yeah. it to your conglomerate. So one of the other big, so there's this management of national versus local that is gonna be an interesting thing as a, for brands to manage. And then we started to talk about it before, but post pandemic, there's gonna be this really interesting dichotomy in the market of experiences and looking out saying, wow, I'm a consumer and I've been stuck here for a year and this pandemic, maybe I'm part of an at-risk population or my part of my family was, and wow, we could have never seen the Italian coast. Mm -hmm. We're going to go do that. And as you mentioned before, this investment in your local community, which is now that we're out and able to really get around uh, in our communities, how do we revivify and keep those tight connections in our local community. So there's this globalization, localization dichotomy here. And then the, the other one is around hedonism versus values. Um, mm -hmm. So this is this sort of mindful hedonism that we think is going to pop up, which is 
people are going to spend like there's no tomorrow because there may not be. This mm -hmm. vaccine may only work for a year for all we know. So in that year, I'm going to get out and, and experience and I'm going to spend and I'm going to probably not have any savings or any of that stuff. And yet at the same time, they're coming out with, I want to support brands that share my values. So this mindful hedonism is really interesting, which is if you're a brand and you can authentically say, hey, I'm supporting people and planet, right? I'm at the forefront of a social justice movement. I'm paying my people a living wage. Then like the consumer's wallets are open. Mm -hmm. They're going to not think they're not going to they're, and, but if you're not that way, I think it's going to be harder, even in a booming economy, if you're not connecting with consumers around values, I don't think you're going to make it. Yeah. I think it's a, a mindfulness, whether it's conscious mind or not of where your dollars are going. So there's a mindfulness built in there of not charity, but it's, I want to make sure that the, what I'm doing, if I'm being a hedonist right now and just spending all of my money, I at least want to make sure that money is going to somebody I can get behind. Mm -hmm. It allows me to be open, open to that idea of, of hedonism in a way. Well, we've seen this, the, we've seen in really stark contrast, what it means to have a lack of empathy and leadership. And in some cases in, in certain companies as well, and people won't soon forget that. And it is going to be a really important brand characteristic to truly demonstrate empathy for your across your supply chain to demonstrate empathy for your workers very importantly in meaningful ways for your customers as well i think that's going to be a, a primary driver of where people choose to spend their money so if we look forward around the future of brand identity there's a couple things we've teased out so you've just mentioned empathy they need to be considered an empathetic brand and, and have leadership that is that is responding to consumers values and that it's authentic. This is literally how I run my company. Mm -hmm. There's experience that responding to the need for consumers to have experience. How does my brand identity play into this larger need for experience that consumers are going to have coming out of this? And then this agility to do a couple things. I think one, involve your consumers in your own brand identity journey and to be able to do that, not at a national scale, but at a local scale. Mm -hmm. So those are just some of the things that I think coming out of this, you guys have brought up as keys to thinking about your brand identity post pandemic. There's, there's four right on the heap there of big things. And any one of these things is a challenge mm -hmm. The fact that they're now going to have to do all four of them at once is, is pretty significant. If I'm a leader inside a company and I'm looking at this list, I'm going, Oof, and the reality is that this is going to be very difficult for large companies to pivot. We've all worked in org change endeavors within large organizations and man, trying to turn the ship a, a degree is very difficult. So there's a lot of work ahead for how big brands, if they're not doing all of these things now to start doing some of them, absolutely. But it's important for smaller organizations, small businesses, local companies, people within organizations to start thinking differently about the way that they approach these ideas of brand and identity and communications, both internally and externally, because the ship will, will be moved by not just the head of the organization or, or the leadership, but by people doing the jobs, the, the people running marketing, the people building messaging. All of these muscles need to be built throughout the organization down to kind of small businesses and people starting up new companies. I think you start exactly for, for the reasons you just said, you start with that first piece of demonstrating the willingness to change, demonstrating the willingness to learn and communicating that constantly and consistently and sincerely. 
without over without too much flash without using it as a way to demonstrate i think you're going to be able to tell if a brand is truly trying to understand the right thing to do and they're constantly demonstrating willingness to listen you've been listening to wavepoint found the podcast that explores brand and identity in the context of change I'm Steve Hurst. And I'm Bessie Ivanova. And we're with Found Brand Agency. We help our clients launch brands, ideas, and products by keeping them grounded in their identity as they navigate change. I'm Christian Cruz, founder of WavePoint. We help companies use the future to grow their products and services, contribute to their communities, and create a better planet. Our show is produced by Found Brand Agency, with original score by Richard Carpenter. You can subscribe to receive future episodes at anchor.fm slash wavepointfound. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.